start us off. That is never a bad thing. Who made who? From Maximum Overdrive, a Stephen King adaptation, and that's what it's all about this week. Welcome. This is the Fright Club Podcast. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf, and we're from MadWolf.com, and this is going to be good. We've been talking about this for a little while, looking forward to it, because uh, today it is all about Stephen King. That's right. It was uh, it was an idea that was thrown out by uh, somebody on Twitter. I love his his handle, Knack Mac. Uh, Dr. Neil McRobert, actually, who studied Stephen King when he was getting his PhD, uh, worked him into his thesis. So he's going to co-host with us today, our senior Stephen King correspondent. We're going to talk about the best Stephen King film adaptations. Welcome, Neil. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's we're glad to have you. And uh, this is perfect because we're talking about Stephen King. You've studied Stephen King. And just to make, just for the cherry on top, you're calling from an inn in Maine. Yeah, it's quite ridiculous. I, uh, I'm over here trying to turn my thesis into a book and I'm just sitting on the coast um, reading Stephen King and basically living in one of his novels at the moment. So, oh, which, which one? Dream, yeah, it's a dream come true. Which one are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading it, but I'm I'm always reading it. It's kind of what I spend my time. I'm going to Bangor um, on Tuesday to do the Stephen King tour. I uh, I'm having quite the the little nerd holiday for myself. It's, <laughs> so so what is that? They take you around his his home, his haunts. What what what, what is the Stephen King tour? Well, I believe that Bangor is um, is kind of the even though in in it he calls the town Derry, it's very much based on on Bangor, Maine, and they take you around all the things that inspired his fiction to his home and and things like that. Should be quite good for nerds like me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, really quickly, your background in studying Stephen King that was all toward a a thesis. Yeah, I did. I did a PhD at the University of Stirling. That's my shout out. Um, that is the. It's in Scotland, and it's the sort of the world centre for uh, Gothic studies, which is I've probably caused quite a lot of controversy saying that, but it, it is the, the recognised centre for Gothic studies. And I did a PhD in contemporary Gothic fiction, um, and basically crowbarred my love of Stephen King into it. <laughs> so if, you, if you can if you can spend your time reading books you would read anyway, then when, why not? You oh know? yeah. That's my- that's perfect. So yeah. you mainly kept your focus on the books and not the movies or a little of both? I kept the focus of the thesis on the books, um, but I've written more widely on on movies and things like that. Um, I'm currently writing an article on his adaptation for the TV show Under the Dome, which I haven't seen yet, but I believe is fairly poor. It's been quite it's been quite heavily criticized. <laughs> um, Okay, good enough. That. So, uh, so you can you can easily uh, earn your title of our senior Stephen King correspondent, and uh, Thank you, it's going to be good as we uh, count down our five favorite uh, Stephen King movie adaptations. And I think that we have some differing opinions, which always makes for spirited conversation. That's right. I should probably point out to uh, to people that, regardless of the fact that I am clearly not the Stephen King uh, expert, I chose the top five, and, um, <laughs> and 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 Neil takes issue with some of my choices. So we'll talk about that, so you guys can actually hear what maybe should be the top five, but. Uh, but we're going with mine. So, but. Well, that's because if anyone hasn't figured it out by now, she rules these <laughs> countdowns with an iron fist. And uh, I'm lucky if I get to chime in from across the room. But that's okay. Just happy to be here. With that, uh, with that in mind, let's get right to it and uh, open it up with our number five of our favorite Stephen King adaptations. And that is from 1995, Dolores Claiborne. They didn't kill her. Take what you want. I ain't doing any beauty pageants this week. That is the last guy 
in the world do you want to make an enemy out of? Motive money. I ain't making one. I'm keeping one. You're an old hand at this, aren't you, Miss Clayman? People do have a tendency to take some bad falls when you're around. What did you do to him, Mommy? Why can't you believe my mother? Because she's done it before. An accident, Dolores, can be an unhappy woman's best friend. It's not, you know, it's not really a horror film at all. Taylor Hackford, who is the coolest person because he's married to Helen Mirren, that just automatically makes you cool. Um, But, you know, I mean, he's known for an officer and a gentleman and Ray and things like that. Certainly not horror films. And this is more of sort of a generational saga about, you know, women living in a men's world sort of a thing. The utterly brilliant Kathy Bates. Awesome. Always, no matter what. You know, she plays Dolores and she's being accused of having killed the woman that she works for, Vera Donovan. Uh, and, and basically, I mean, not only does she sort of look guilty, but the whole town, the tiny main island where she lives, they all believe that she killed her husband years ago. And her daughter, who is Jennifer Jason Lee, she comes home from New York where she's a big shot journalist to sort of support her mom even though she also believes that her mom killed her dad so there's a lot of flashback sequences sort of where they slowly unveil what happened in the past and what is happening in the current situation and it's you know family conflict that's being resolved so it is not a horror film it's it's definitely just a bit of a thriller but um it's dark boy david strathairn who plays the abusive father that dies in the flashbacks he's wonderful he's always wonderful but he's wonderful in this movie jennifer jason lee she's not my favorite generally speaking i think she maybe oversells it a little bit here but but it's it's uh kathy bates's show as is generally the case i mean she's really wonderful and then judy parfit who plays vera donovan she's also really wonderful and the two together the scenes that they have together just these sort of tough as nails main folk um, from, you know, different social stratas just facing off a little. It's, it's that part of the film alone is so worth it. You know, I don't think a lot of people really remember this one as well as they ought to. I watched this again for the first time in about a decade last night. Um, and I watched it sitting on an island in Maine. So it, was got, it all got a little bit meta. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's one of, it would be Kathy Bates' best performance, but we'll argue that there may be other ones. Yes, on this yes, list. yes. Um, but yeah, I, I think yeah, as you said, David Strathairn is is mesmerising in it. The scene where he first lashes out at Dolores is is truly chilling in the way it, it unfolds. Uh, but for me, the, the the scene in this film I always re- remember is the scene with Vera with Judy Parfit, where she's kind of coming to terms with her own disability and her own mortality, and it's a really chilling scene. Strangely, it reminds me very much of the scene with Zelda in Pet Cemetery. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's that that same kind of you know it's the grotesquery of someone who is who is not able. You know the way that's played for the camera. Um, it's really quite it's quite chilling. Two things: it's got one of the greatest lines in any Stephen King film ever, which is "Sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to," right. <laughs> which is this refrain that runs through. But my one criticism when I was watching it is the soundtrack. It's the most nineties soundtrack you've ever heard. <laughs> if you close your eyes, it could be like Home Alone. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of doopy doopy doop. It's just. Such a strange choice of soundtrack. But yeah, overall, it's a great mood piece, I would say. Not not a horror film, but a mood piece. It is very, very much of a mood piece. Now, are there any significant differences between the movie and the book? Not really, no. It's one of the most um, faithful adaptations. The the book goes into quite a lot more detail about the relationship between Dolores and Vera, which I think goes some way to explain the backbone of, of why Dolores acts as she does. And that's a little bit 
it could be more fleshed out in the film. But aside from that, no, it's it's a very faithful adaptation. I'm glad to say. So so few of them are. You know, before we jump on to the next one, there are going to be so many Stephen King movies that we do not cover in this list today. Let's each pick one that didn't make the list, but we think deserves a mention. I would have to say It, partly because I love the book so much, but for a number of reasons. Like, it, I mean, it, is a, it was a miniseries rather than a film, I suppose, which a lot of Stephen King films are because of the length of the novel. Um, you know, it's quite difficult to get it into a, a two-hour movie. But it was King's attempt to write the, in his own terms, the ultimate horror novel, which is why it's got every monster you can think of in it. But I think it's got to be up there because Pennywise the Clown, more than any other character King has created, has kind of entered into the, the public consciousness. I would argue he's up there with, you know, Freddy or Jason. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that is one that we have some definite feelings for. It, it, we wouldn't include it because it isn't. it was a TV movie. But yet it really cuts to how we feel about a lot of Stephen King uh, projects in that it starts so well. Pennywise is so great. And then it just falls apart in the second half, just right through the right through the floor. I think you're right about Pennywise uh, becoming part of the, the, the horror culture. But man, for me and I think for Hope, too, what a disappointing ending. Yeah, and I mean, Tim Curry is really basically perfect always, and he is so perfect as that clown. And the idea of a clown luring children, I mean, you know, the whole first part of that miniseries is, is just brilliant and wonderful and terrifying. And then, you know, you go to part two, and then they're adults, and they're, they're like sitcom stars from the 80s, and, they, you know, it devolves for me as well, although I think part one is really one of the scariest movies ever. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think what's great about the movie is it, it's, I don't know about in the U.S., but in, in the U.K., in my generation, it was a real kind of rite of passage movie. Every, everyone who was 13, 14 watched it. And it was, for a lot of people, their <laughs> entryway into horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would argue it is, it's a kid's movie for adults. Stephen King writes kids for adults. And I think that's why the part with the children is much more engaging than later on. Because yeah. Yeah. it's just that sense of helplessness. And, and also, it's a very warm movie. It's a very kind of, it's about camaraderie and, and friendship and things like that. So it, there's a lot more to it than just horror. I would argue. And the one uh, that I would throw out uh, was just from last year. I don't know how many people saw it. Very under the radar, but I thought it was very good. It's called A Good Marriage. Have you uh, seen that one? I haven't seen that one yet. No, it's on my Netflix to watch list. Yeah, very, uh, very, very, I seen it. very quiet. It's got some great performances. Uh, Joan Allen. Um, and uh, there's a there's a question about whether her husband uh, has a secret life as a killer, and uh, it's very effective. Not outright horror, but creepy, kind of thrilling, and uh, that would be my mine for an also ran. And mine is Dead Zone, partly because I am just a sucker for Cronenberg. I love me some Cronenberg. Yeah. And um, Christopher Walken, yes, please. It, but but also I love the way that it, it, it sort of starts as a, you know, like psychic oh, my life is terrible because I'm a psychic now thriller. And then it turns into this weird political thing where Martin Sheen is just unhinged. And it's it's just fun to because it's very unpredictable. You don't you think it's going in one particular direction with this romance. And, you know, the kid falls into the uh, under the ice, which is a, it's an awesome scene. And then it just takes this abrupt left turn with this political thriller kind of a deal going on. And um, it's kind of an unusual film, I think, for Cronenberg. Not a lot of sort of body horror to it, which is no. also, I think, made it very unpredictable for me so that i do like that one yeah it's strange the depth zone it's it's a book that a lot of people myself included forget that king wrote it's one of his lesser remembered works from the 70s but yes i mean it is a very different thing to most of his books and a very different film to most of his adaptations and martin sheen just 
as Stilson just kind of eats the scenery in that. <laughs> it's a great performance. He does. So those yeah. are good. Those are three uh, bubbling under our top five. But uh, we're going to get into it now, get to the, the heart of the, the batting order with number four, and that is Misery. Paul, do you know about the early days at the Kimberly Diamond Mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking a Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working. But they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. I need for God's Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. Hey, please! In my opinion, probably the best Stephen King adaptation, though I know Hope disagrees, as you'll see. <laughs> A lot of people have seen this by now. It has, it has entered into pop culture, so you get a lot of spoofs of this. The basic premise is that Paul Sheldon, played brilliantly by James Calm, is a best-selling writer who has just finished his latest novel in a long sequence of historical romances um, in which he's killed off the titular character, Misery Chastain. Whilst he's driving across, across country with the only copy of the manuscript in his car, he has a horrible car crash, and is lucky in inverted commas, enough to be rescued by his number one fan, who was just played sublimely by Kathy Bates um, in what I think is without a doubt her best role. And it becomes a kind of cat and mouse thriller, but in which the the mouse, James Kahn, is is trapped in bed due to his injuries. And he's forced or, shall we say, pressured to write a book that's more to Annie's liking than his, his most recent one. It's, again, a very faithful adaptation, though the most famous scene, the hobbling scene, is, uh, is very different in the book. But I would argue it's, without a doubt, King's best adaptation. And the scene, for those who've seen it, the scene where Paul Sheldon manages to escape his bedroom whilst, whilst Annie is off buying him paper um, and then has to hurriedly get back in the bedroom and hide his tracks whilst, when she, when she re- reappears at the front door, I think it's one of the most nail-biting scenes in, in cinema full stop. I remember when I first saw it, I was 13 years old, watching it in bed like at night with the TV turned really low so my parents wouldn't know. And uh, I was just, I was just white knuckle all the way. It was, it's terrifying. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, Kathy Bates won the Oscar uh, very deservedly that year for her performance. And uh, the movie came out in 1990, so I don't think we'll have to worry too much about spoiling. But the uh, scene you talk about, the hobbling scene, which is the, probably the most famous, uh, it is very different in the book. In the book, she cuts his foot off. Correct me if I'm wrong, from what I have read, uh, that was a real sticking point, and it even cost the movie its first director. Uh, the original director was supposed to be George Roy Hill, uh, famous, of course, for The Sting and for others. And there was such a disagreement uh, between himself and Rob Reiner about what to do with that scene. That's how Rob Reiner ended up directing uh, the movie. There was just a, a lot of disagreement all the way around about how to treat that scene, if they want to keep it uh, with her cutting his foot off. Or from what I've read, Rob Reiner felt that uh, in the end, he wanted uh, Paul to have a measure of victory over Annie at the end. And if he was without his foot, he would not have that completely for, for the audience. So that's why they went with the hobbling, which is still extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. I think the hobbling is is superior. I think Rob Reiner's choice is superior to the amputation. I think it's much more, you know, in horror films, we're kind of used to seeing things get lopped off, you know, whereas when you see the way his leg bends, it's something I'd never seen before. Granted, I was only 13, but I think it's a far superior um, attack, shall we say, than if she just cut it off. 
I, I agree with you, especially, uh, yeah, cinematically. It is. It's mm-hmm. like, you're right, you know, uh, you watch a horror film and, and something like that, you know, is, somebody loses an appendage. Well, that's not that, it's really not that uncommon. But that, that hobbling scene, I mean, in everything about it, you know, everything about it and the way he shoots it so that she's just looming over the bed. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, well, I mean, people are still talking about it now. So obviously mm-hmm. it was a very effective scene. And we should also say that Rob Reiner, because of this, became one of the premier King directors. I mean, he made Stand By Me as well, which is the other, uh, another great King adaptation. And he also founded Castle Rock, which I, people may not know is, yeah. is derived from King's fictional town that he writes about. So this was the birth of a really strong partnership between the two. So probably a good choice, all in all. Certainly not for the worse and, and, and maybe for the better, depending on who you ask. Although I think I did read a, a quote from Kathy Bates who, who said that she always felt they should have kept with the cutting off. Uh, that might be an old interview. I don't know if she still feels that way, but it's definitely a good point to, uh, to debate. Mm-hmm, definitely. And that is our number four uh, from 1990 Misery. Moving on up to number three, just from, uh, from 2007, it's The Mist. What's going on? Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! It is time to take sides. Read the good book. It calls for blood. I promise you won't let the monsters get me. Who she's gonna sacrifice to make it all better? We want the boy. You try it. Kill So The Mist is a, it's a bit of an oddity, really, because it, it comes from a short novella of Stephen King's um, that was collected in Skeleton Crew back in 1985. It's a B-movie setup with a very un-B-movie resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it's a, B-movie, it's a B-movie setup in which this, this mammoth storm hits this small, typical Stephen King, small main community. Um, the father, played by Thomas Jane, takes his young son, to uh, and a neighbour whom he has a kind of disagreement with, that they go to the local hardware grocery store, mom and pop store, um, where together with a kind of miscellaneous group of neighbours, they are trapped inside when this strange, like monstrous mist um, appears. And as we find out as the film progresses, there are things in the mist that are not to be toyed with. Stephen King, this was actually filmed by Frank Darabont, who I would argue is the great Stephen King director. He directed this, Shawshank and The Green Mile. Stephen King says this is the only adaptation of one of his own books which actually scared him, hmm. uh, which I think <laughs> is quite a, quite a nice little, little detail. Um, and it's, it's a much more typical, it's a much more physical horror film than we normally get from Stephen King's work, which tends to base most of its horror um, in the kind of psychological interiors of its characters. But this is very much a kind of, you know, full throttle, b-movie monster picture i mean the scene when they go into the 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 pharmacy next door and there are these just monstrous insects attacking them with radioactive spider webs i mean it's straight from the 1950s but it's just done with such good cg and we should also give massive kudos to uh marcia gay harden who kind of steals everything she's in as the evil you know religious cult leader mrs carmody it is. It is funny because it, it's a full-on creature feature, you know, like mm-hmm. you're saying this movie, which is which is very unusual for Stephen King. In a lot of other ways, it's a 
sort of typical Stephen King film. You've got, uh, you know, it's main characters and they're, you know, they're stuck in this grocery store waiting for the Armageddon, waiting either to be saved or to be killed. And, and it's fascinating to watch how then they break off into, into little sex. And yeah, Marcia Gay Harden is, is brilliant as she usually is. But I mean, she's just brilliant as this zealot who's decided, you know, that this is, this is God's wrath and that, you know, she's going to choose, well, sacrifices. I mean, it's, it, which it's so, terrifying and so um effectively honestly terrifying that you think to yourself yeah you just got to take your chances with the monsters thomas jane is also great as is usually the case and uh so i don't know if we want to talk about the ending specifically but the ending of the film is different than the ending of the novella is that correct it is the ending of the novella is much more ambiguous um there is a link because the ending that occurs in the film is mentioned as a possible outcome by thomas jane's character but it would never actually get there. It's a much more ambiguous ending that King leaves us with. I think we're fair to talk about the uh, the ending. Uh, if you're listening and don't know the ending, turn it off for a second. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, in the in the movie ending, um, he shoots his family just before finding out that he didn't have to. Um, yeah. And and so in the book, he's he's you say he's just contemplating that that might be a, a way out. In in the book, he, he him and his son sit in a abandoned diner. And he considers that he has, he has, because the old couple who will go with the man in the book, it's just him, um, his son, and the female character, I can't remember her name. Uh, and he contemplates that he, he, has, he has three bullets left, but then he drives off. And the last thing we see is just him driving on through the mist. So you can kind of make your own mind up whether or not they make it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I can definitely say this, this was another um, a change that uh, was for the better. Yeah, I think so. And, and, uh, I, you know, I think two things. Uh, the ending may be one of the reasons why the film did not really make much money once it came out. On the other hand, I think the ending is the reason why it's developed such a very passionate following because it's memorable. I mean, it sticks with you. You know what I mean? It is a, it is a gut punch. It sits so uneasily with the kind of B movie tone of the film because with these, like, you know, with all these 50s, you know, the blob, you know, them, you expect the, the strong jawed hero to sort it all out, and in this, it just it just unravels, and it just doesn't. It's not the kind of ending you expect from this kind of movie at all. Yeah, and another thing that you mentioned that I really like about this movie: not only the Marcia Gay Harden character of the you know religious zealot that's very overt in what they're talking about, but I think in some ways the entire plot could be a metaphor for that sort of thinking when you're talking about you know sacrificing people that have to go out into the mist. Uh, maybe it's a sacrifice, and she wants to sacrifice the boy. Maybe not the entire movie, but I, I got a real sense that the, the entire situation could be an overall metaphor for that type of radical behavior. Sure, yeah, it is. It's almost kind of like societal decay in microcosm, I suppose. You know, right. you get this, and, and Stephen King does that very well. He did that in Under the Dome. It's a very similar setup. Oh, yeah. Um, so. But I mean, this is, this is even though this is probably a tenth of the length of Under the Dome, it manages to kind of distill all those those issues much more successfully, I yeah. would argue. Yeah. And, this, and, I think this this is one of things greatest, this is one of Stephen King's greatest pieces of writing, this this little novella. Real fans will talk about this as one of their favourites. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And the film is, again, a very faithful, aside from, aside from that ending, it's a very faithful adaptation. Yeah, so that's number three, The Mist from 2007. So let's move up to number two, and that's a classic from 1976. It's Carrie. Carrie White. The girl no one likes. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. No, 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 no. 
show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. If you have a taste for terror, <laughs> you have a date with Carrie. Well, we're talking about Carrie. This is where I have to say that Hope and I won a Halloween costume contest by going as Carrie and Tommy a few years ago. <laughs> it's a great, uh, it's a great image and become just iconic in horror movies with the blood spouted white dress and Tommy with that ridiculous hair and suit. But it's just a small part of uh, what is a great movie. And uh, of course, Brian De Palma, very famously, uh, the director. And I think one of his, you know, Brian De Palma can be a kind of a hit and miss uh, sort of director, but this was definitely a hit as uh, Carrie is the sheltered daughter of Piper Laurie, who is just gloriously over the, oh my God, what a great performance by Piper Laurie as, uh, as, as Carrie's mom and uh, Mrs. White. Again, with the religious zealotry, uh, the radicalism, she keeps her, you know, under her thumb and, and can't socialize, can't date, all that stuff. Uh, and then Carrie, of course, has these telekinetic powers and starts asserting her independence and gets uh, invited uh, to the dance by Tommy at the insistence of Sue, Sue Snell, uh, Amy Irving. And then uh, we know that things go wrong at the dance because of Nancy Allen and the pig's blood and John Travolta. He's Nancy Allen's boyfriend that helps rig up the, uh, the pig's blood. And then uh, when she gets it dumped on and then she takes out her wrath on all the people, especially PJ Souls. Uh, with her stupid hat. I'm sorry. That, that, that hat just bugs the crap out of me. And, uh, and, e- and Edie McClurg is in the, is in the, yeah, a bunch of people. Betty Buckley was, is a great, uh, sort of a cameo, almost a cameo performance as the, uh, as the gym teacher. And it's just so funny to see some of the behaviors back then in the 70s of these teachers. And I mean, she slaps a student. I mean, I'm like, wow. It was serious slapped, back then. She slapped her for real as well when they were filming it. Um, I read somewhere, whether it's true or not, that they had to keep doing that take and she ended up slapping her 35 times. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. In the end, it you know evolves into terror of her wreaking havoc on the town. And then, of course, you've got that great final shot that everybody remembers with the uh, hand coming up through the grave. Yeah, I think the movie works as well as it does because you buy Sissy Spacek as this character. I think one of the reasons why the remake did not work very well is that Nobody believes that Chloe Moretz, you don't look like Chloe Moretz and then and then have this kind of sheltered, horrified, you know what I mean? But but uh, Sissy Spacek really did a beautiful job of being very believably um, just under her mother's thumb. And she was nominated for an Oscar. Piper Laurie's nominated for an Oscar. I mean, it was an incredibly well acted film. And this is one of the films in which I think, again, the the film itself makes some corrections to Stephen King's ending. I think for me, the book ends too big because she sort of, you know, then she wreaks havoc across town and all the way to her house. Whereas I think, I think in, in De Palma's version, you know, we've got that amazing carnage at the prom and then it's just directly home because like you're even thinking that while you're watching it, you're like, well, she may have taken care of these kids, but they're not really her problem. So, uh, so I love, I love that about it, that where it leaves us is what's really the most pivotal, which is this relationship between uh, mother and daughter. I just think, as much as I adore Misery, I would still argue it's the best. I think this is the most chilling adaptation of Stephen King's work. Uh, there's something about Sissy SpaceX's face when that, that blood lands on her at the prom. Um, 
and the way her eyes are kind of you know bugging out of her head when she's staring around at people in that in that crazy synth soundtrack and it's just the entire thing's like a fever dream um and i think it's so chilling and so sad as well that's the thing people get it's a really tragic tale and i yeah piper laurie possibly the best casting um in all of these films we're talking about i mean yeah. such a she's so scary and so hateful um but also such a victim in her own way um and that's one thing the book does it gives you some some background to margaret white which this which the film doesn't but yeah again the ending stephen king writes terrible endings i mean that's pretty much with with a few exceptions the endings are always the weak part of it weak yes. part of his um novels yes um as they are with, as with most horror writers it's you know they make a story too big they have to bring it back down this film De Palma just hits the tone and the size and the scale perfectly. Um, and like, like you say, Hope, it does become, you know, that fundamental battle between her and her mother. Everybody else is just kind of in the way. I liked the remake a little better than Hope did. Were well, your thoughts on the remake? I despised it with a hate <laughs> that will never die. <laughs> uh, hey, don't sugarcoat it. I mean, I, just um, feel free to tell us what you think. It's just the, I, I just even the blood, it, it's the most, the CGI, it looks cheap, it looks, it's pretty much a film made for, for teenagers rather than made for adults, and I think it just loses everything that makes this original so powerful. I, I really hated it. And <laughs> I really liked, I really liked Chloe Moretz, I mean, I think she's a great actress, but so wrong for this role. And Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is, is brilliant all the time, and she actually did a fine job in it, but but she was wrong. The casting was wrong all the way around. Yeah. You know, and then when you see this itty-bitty little twig of a woman, Julianne Moore, whereas, you know, Piper Laurie could drag Carrie, you know, around. She could, but you're looking yeah. at Julianne Moore going, well, she's got to be out of breath pretty soon trying to wrestle <laughs> this girl into that closet. All right, so two two no's and, uh, and a kind of a yes for, uh, for the remake. <laughs> but uh, big yeses all around for Carrie, the original Carrie, 1976. That's our number two. And that moves us on up to number one. And you knew what it was going to be, but I think uh, Neil has some, um, has some opinions, and we'll get to those because number one is The Shining. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I recognize you. I saw your picture in the newspapers. You, uh, chopped your wife and daughter up into little bits. And, uh, and you blew your brains out. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. I'm sure that surprises very few people uh, in that this has been the number one on a number of our different podcasts because I love this movie. A lot of people love this movie. I mean, it's funny. It, it, it was it was not received well when it came out. It was nominated for two Razzies. Kubrick and Shelley Duvall were both nominated for Razzies. But currently it sits at number 29 on the American Film Institute's ranking of the 100 best films ever made. So over the years, it's obviously grown in stature. Yeah, so we've talked about it. A lot, and let's just give you the floor. I know you have some issues, uh, Neil. So, what's uh, what's your your bones to pick with The Shining? For a start, I'm not sure if I hate it as much as I think I do, or whether I just think it's. I think perhaps it's just a, a film I find okay, but I I get angry because everyone else loves it so much. <laughs> um, but on the whole, I just think it's an incredibly flawed adaptation of a novel. 
Uh, and you can see this two ways. You can see it as an adaptation or you can see it as a film, as a narrative in its own right. And that's the argument a lot of people make. But I think even as a film in its own right, it just, I find it fundamentally unscary, which I know is kind of sacrilege. I just don't think it's a scary film. And my problem is, is with the performances. Jack Nicholson, the film is about a man trying really hard to cling to his sanity. And whether he's going crazy because of his alcoholism or because of some flaw in his character or whether it's because of a supernatural, you know, events that happened around him. Either way, you need to have a baseline from which you can see this 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 decline. And he just seems nuts from the first scene. <laughs> yeah. I, like, you would not trust this man to look after your garden, let alone a hotel. You know, he just he just looks crazy. Uh, and Shelley Duvall. I mean, what more can you say about Shelley Duvall in this film? I mean, in the book, she's just this really strong, really good mother figure. And in this, she's just, she just mules all the way through. Yeah, the that, kid's supposed to be lovable, but he's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> that is, in, in much of what I've read about the, the people like yourself who have a problem with the movie adaptation, it always starts there with the casting. And with that point especially, that uh, in, in Jack Nicholson's hands, uh, Mr. Torrance is uh, crazy from the get-go. Instead, yeah. and, but but to be fair, and and I haven't read the book multiple times. I have spoken with some people who who have said on multiple readings they start to get more of a feeling that maybe he is crazy from the beginning. I, I don't know if you found that to be true or not. I think he's damaged. He's he's a damaged character in the book. He's, it's it's about. I mean, this is where you, you come into the gothic angle. Gothic is all about inheriting trauma and inheriting the sin of the father and you know the past haunting the present and you get that in the overlook hotel in itself and you get it in jack who is a the son of an alcoholic um who you know becomes an alcoholic and in the sequel dr sleep that king wrote a few years ago we find out that that danny has become an alcoholic so it's about that passing on of trauma um so he's a very damaged character but he's a much better and more relatable man in the book than, he is, than I find him in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my other problem also, if I've got time, is with, is with the direction because, and here I am kind of paraphrasing King. A lot of the time I just disagree with Stephen King because I think he's, he's quite an anti-intellectualist. Uh, and when you're trying to do academic work on him, you kind of have to, be, have to take umbrage with that sometimes. But in, in this book, in terms of this film, I do agree with him. He says the problem is that the book is about heat and fire. In, the book ends with the hotel burning down, for example, whereas in the film, it's all about cold. He freezes death at the end. And I think that cold permeates every part of the film. And when you've got a film that's about a family, you need to have some kind of warmth or some kind of investment. And I think this film refuses to allow you that. But then again, it's just my opinion. No, actually, I can see what you're saying. Of course, that's just that's just Kubrick. I mean, beginning to end, that is just Kubrick. I mean, he's a very he has always been. He was always yeah. a very chilly, atmospheric director, and, and and no warmth in anything that he's done. And for me, I don't think that has ever caused a problem in appreciating the film. I mean, it's it's so gorgeous to look at, and so just visually bizarre right from the very opening shot with the you know the helicopter shot of the tiny little beetle like going through the snow headed toward there and of course the completely insane pattern of that rug that there and then just this is sound of that big wheel you know Uh, and of course you know i don't know if you're terrified by uh, the twins but uh, most of the rest of us are the grady twins are the one saving grace yeah the grady twins are they are scary 
they are some scary twins. They're scarier than you and your sister. They are some really <laughs> scary. Um, in fact, I should give a bit of a plug. My my PhD mentor, Dale Townsend, who won't be listening because he's far too busy, but yeah, Dale Townsend, um, he actually organised an exhibition um, about Gothic culture at the British Museum. And he got the girls who played the Grady twins to open it. Oh, beautiful. They came over and, and they cut the ribbon. And Very so, nice. Yeah, Lisa and Louise Burns. Uh, the, the is that twins. the names? I, I don't yeah. know. Is that the name? Yeah, just perfect. So I'm <laughs> guessing then you prefer the TV uh, movie version? No, no. That's even worse. Oh, okay. Well, then good. Yeah, You're back no. in our good graces. Well, because yeah. I've always yeah, heard, yeah. I've always heard that that's the one that Stephen King said is closer to his vision. Right. So um, I, I was wrong in assuming that you would like it better. So good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard about the, they're making a, a prequel TV show? Have not. Um, have not heard about that. Yeah. Mark Romanek um, is directing a prequel. I'm not sure it's a TV show or a movie. Um, it's just going to be called Overlook Hotel, and it's about the building and the early years of the hotel. That could be fascinating. Although, you know, yeah. we haven't watched uh, American Horror Story this season, but I saw a couple of ads for it and realized just based on the carpeting alone that it strikes oh, me yeah. that that's based in the Overlook. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people that are watching it and saying, oh, yeah, it's got a strong, shining vibe. Um, really quickly, have you seen the documentary Room 237? I think it's brilliant. And I, and I think when you're watching it, you kind of have to pinch yourself because now and again, these, they, it almost seems plausible. Um, but then you think, hang on a second, this is nuts. You know? but, I mean, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, the one with the, about the, the plight of the, of the Native Americans, yeah. I thought yeah. that. It was, it's almost difficult to argue with the way those those tins perfectly kind of encapsulate Jack's head when he's in the freezer. It's it's. See, I suppose if if you take one one thread line, you can prove anything, can't you? So it, yeah, because isn't that funny? Because I found that one I think to be the most ridiculous. <laughs> really did. Um, that's just that's just me. I found that one to be just totally. Are you are you kidding me with this? But uh, th- that's that's what makes it so much fun to not only that documentary, which I agree with you, is brilliant. Uh, it just makes it so much fun to talk about because it's a movie that lends itself to so much introspection like that. Well, I think you can, you can examine almost any Kubrick movie to that, to that degree. My favorite thing that I learned from that documentary, though, is that the magazine that, that Jack Torrance is looking at just casually as he's waiting for his job interview is, of all things, a playgirl. That's hilarious. Yeah, but that's what I mean about Kubrick. He, want, he wants you to be kind of, you know, these little details that make Jack odd from the get-go that's that's what i'm talking about well, yeah that is a nice little little detail <laughs> one of the many yeah so uh, number one on our list and not number one on on uh neil's list but one that definitely gets the conversation uh going is the shining from 1980 where where would you have put it on your list neil fifth i think and i would have replaced dolores claiborne with cujo i think that's what i would have done if it was up to me but the other ones would all have been the same it's a good point that you bring up that you realize part of your disdain for the movie is because so many other people like it so much. Yeah, I never got it. So I think the more I hear people <laughs> kind of eulogize it, I start to, I think, perhaps I'm just a little bit stubborn, a little bit difficult. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Good thoughts. And it's fun. It's, it's like, like um, Hope said, as many Kubrick movies are, it's just fun to delve into mm-hmm. and see what you think about. So that's number one on our list. But let us know what you think. As always, uh, keep that conversation going. Uh, who, who's right about The Shining? Or who, what's your favorite uh, Stephen King adaptation that we didn't talk about? Let us know. We're at Mad Wolf on Twitter, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Uh, Facebook, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And of course, Hope's favorite Twitter handle for Neil 
at NACMAC. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and, and one of the things that you can tell us, uh, actually, while you're up there, while you're uh, tweeting and the whatnot, uh, we're looking for some ideas for future podcasts. We thought that we might, um, you know, devote one uh, entirely to a particular director, a particular horror director. So if there's somebody that you think deserves, you know, a full celebration, either a director or I suppose we could either we could also do an actor or actress. So let us know what you think, who, who you think deserves a full, you know, the full top five treatment we've talked about the best let's chime in very quickly with our worst our worst stephen king adaptations i'll go first it's got to be graveyard shift yeah that's pretty terrible i, I quite like the giant killer rats um <laughs> i would have to say oh it's a difficult one there are so many bad ones um i would have to say probably the mangler oh yeah toby hooper what the hell I know. Yeah. It's kind of the Robert Englund thing. It's just a little bit too tongue-in-cheek. You know, any film you have Robert Englund in is, you know, it's, it's, there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek, poking fun in itself element there. And I think it just didn't deserve a film. And the other one, of course, is The Lawnmower Man, which is just nothing to Stephen King actually sued about The Lawnmower Man. Oh. It's nothing to do with the story whatsoever. I have to go with Dreamcatcher. That was, uh, that was pretty profoundly awful, actually, and uh, a huge waste of a great cast. So those are the worst. So, uh, all right, let us know, as we said. Hit us up on Twitter to uh, talk more about Stephen King. And we want to hip you to the fact that uh, we've got our next uh, Fright Club live coming up at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus. That will be November 11th. We're going to do another live taping of the Fright Club podcast as we show the orphanage and talk about best Spanish language horror. So you can always uh, chime in about that as well. Be sure, if you're listening on iTunes, to uh, give us a rating, hopefully a good one. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we would love to hear from you. And real quick, Neil, so if we were going to do a podcast on a director, actor, or actress, who would you have us do? Um, you've mentioned him in this podcast already. It has to be Cronenberg. That's two votes for Cronenberg because our friend at Colossal Bandit also picked Cronenberg. I think that's pretty much a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I would say so. <laughs> uh, Neil, our, our senior Stephen King correspondent, good stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me very much. And until next time, this is the Fright Club podcast. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf. Neil, end it for us. Stay frightful, my friends. Yeah. Yeah.